with your host, Craig Allen. If you're tired of seeing the media cater to the far right or the far left, if you're sick of talking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen. Hello again, and welcome to our little program. Welcome to one and all to Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. I am Craig Allen, your host, and thank you, Will J, for that great announcement. On today's show, we're going to look at foreign policy, foreign wars, and the Israeli conflict. In our poli-sci for the normal guy or girl segment, we will dive into war in Israel. We will look at something that is affecting us here in the United States, what we are doing to help, how we'll look at our foreign policy and foreign wars and the foreign policy behind it. We will find out about the life and accomplishments of one of my great heroes in the great American heroes portion. He was a beloved president and a great leader who was known for angering people before he was known for being so highly respected. So stay with us to find out more about him. We also have a couple of fun segments coming up. We're going to talk about Bigfoot, amongst other things. If you are looking for him, we might know where you can find him. And our newest segment, Thrills on the Hill, where we will talk about trying to elect a House Speaker. Oh, the fun in that. So... Without further ado, we're going to get right into our poli-sci for the normal guy segment. We are here for the cause of freedom. There are many on Israel's side in the war today in this conflict against the evil of terrorism. It's a complicated topic, though, that goes back hundreds of years. There are very few sure things in life, and they go from death to taxes to babies being born and other things. Another sure thing is that there is no peace in the Middle East. There hasn't been a peaceful Middle East for a very, very long time. We're going to discuss some foreign policy with the United States and the allies and NATO and Israel and how all that fits in and how these foreign wars are raged. Israel is a country whose origins go all the way back to the Bible. It's home to the Jewish people. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but it's not 100% Jewish. The Jewish population there... It's about 74% of the total population. And then the rest of the population, there's some Arab population. There are some Christians. There are others who are actually Jewish, but they just have partial Jewish heritage and they don't count them as as Jewish for the sake of Israel because it doesn't fit in with, with the way they look at ancestry. There was an intent after World War II to not repeat another Holocaust. So between several allies, Israel was created in 1948 to give the Jewish people a home. After they created the country of Israel, Jews began moving there from all over the world, from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, and this soon became a dominant place for the Jewish people. In fact, almost half of the world's population of Jews lives in Israel. Uh, The second largest single area of population for Jews is in New York City, about Seven and a half million Jews live in Israel and about 1.2 million live in New York City. About six million live in the U.S. as a whole. And there are other large populations in the U.S. in Texas and California. There's also larger populations of Jews in France, Canada, the U.K. Israel has been ally to the United States for a long time. It's not a part of NATO. So NATO, if you're not familiar with, 
that concept is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was set up after World War II to protect European countries from the Soviet Union, from the advance of communism, from attack European countries and invade them. The reason why Israel is not a part of this, Israel is not Europe. <laughs> Very simple. The NATO really is open to European countries. There are many allies though of Israel who are NATO countries. And a lot of these NATO countries are now supplying aid to Israel in this help to fight Hamas, this terrorist organization. So talking about foreign wars and why this foreign war is very important to us, the U.S. gets dragged into many foreign wars. If you look at both World War II and World War I, we tried to stay out. We tried not to join, but we got dragged in. We got pulled into both. The Japanese attacked us in Pearl Harbor and that pulled us in. We generally get pulled into many wars. We have become in some enclaves known as the policemen of the world because of us going into different places and fighting to control a population or to fix something or to get involved in a fight or to negotiate peace. It is very costly to do this. It forces us to try and fight sometimes on many different fronts. Like right now, we're looking at Taiwan, we're looking at Israel, we're looking at Ukraine. Taiwan is in trouble because China wants to attack Taiwan and take Taiwan. They think Taiwan should be a part of China. And you got Ukraine attacked by Russia because Russia wants to take back some of the old Soviet states that were once a part of the Soviet Union and Ukraine was one of those. This creates a lot of problems because here is the US trying to help Israel because of the sadistic crimes committed by Hamas. So where do we come in with that? Well, Gaza is a tiny little narrow strip of land that was once part of Israel, and it's only 140 square miles. Now, I'm not sure uh, how many of you are aware of the size of Austin, Texas, but if you've ever been there, it's about 275 square miles. So if you were to cut the city limits of Austin, Texas in half, you would have Gaza. This is a very small area. It's not large at all. However, it is very densely populated. It's home to about 2.3 million people. It was once a part of Israel after it was captured during the Six-Day War in the 60s. And to talk about the Six-Day War would be a whole other session that I can't get into right now. The Six-Day War was very important because it put a lot of geography in a lot of different places. But Israel captured Gaza. And Gaza has been passed around between Israel, between Egypt, between Palestinian control, and it's really been passed around a lot. The Palestinians living there want their freedom from Israel. So in 2005, after many protests and pushing and everything else, Israel gave them their independence and they wanted to hold elections. To the surprise of many, they elected Hamas as their leadership. And Hamas has held that leadership ever since. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Make no bones about it. Part of their creed is that the Jewish population should be eradicated from the earth. There's about 15 million Jews across the earth and they want them all dead. Obviously, they are not a peaceful organization. This is not a peaceful goal. Israel simply wants to protect itself. It has always had help from the US and other allies. It is a power in its own self now. It has really grown uh, because 
It conscripts its own people into the military. It tells all of its people that you have to serve in the Israeli military forces for two years. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can be called back or called up and you have to come back and you have to fight in the Israeli military forces. It now has one of the best air forces in all the world. And it's also protected from some of the terrorist attacks by an AI-driven missile system, a missile defense system called the Iron Dome. And this has also angered Hamas because they do not like the fact that it is so difficult now to attack Israel. And this system was set up to protect Israel from rockets that get fired from Gaza, which is in the southern part of Israel, uh, the West Bank, which is in the west, and then to the north, Hezbollah which is another terrorist organization in Lebanon. According to many sources, these groups have over 100,000 rockets that they can fire into Israel. Now you think about that. That would be destruction like I've not seen. And this is part of the reason why Israel wants to completely eradicate Hamas from the face of the earth. Going back to those terrible attacks just inflicted upon them. But the other part is, it's difficult to defend itself along two or three different fronts. They could be attacked from the west, they could be attacked from the north, they could be attacked from the south. So Israel, the US and other allies feel that Hamas is also terrorizing its own people, the Palestinians. They frequently use them as human shields to protect themselves from Israel fighting back or someone attacking them. And they are trying to do this now. After the brutal Hamas attacks, which happened in early October, where more than 1,200 innocent civilians in Israel were slaughtered mercilessly. It's too brutal to talk about here. Women, children, babies, the elderly, disabled, as many as 200 more were kidnapped. Some were beheaded and they were killed in their homes. It was awful. Israel declared war on Hamas. And Israel has called up through its reserves and other military readiness programs as many as 600,000 to go fight Hamas. And they have already been firing on Hamas targets with calculated strikes into Gaza with their air force. And the Israelis are prepared to invade Gaza now to conduct urban warfare to weed out and destroy Hamas completely. And many think, why did Hamas do this? Thinking that Israel might destroy them, why did Hamas go in and make these brutal attacks? Well, some think now that Hamas may have overplayed its hand. Some think the attackers were supposed to go in, attack a certain place, then move on, attack another certain place, then move on and go on towards Jerusalem. But they got off their mission. They started brutalizing people, brutalizing women, brutalizing different people that they were coming across and finding some that they could take back and just decided to do another mission. Other people think Hamas just wasn't prepared for the situation that they got into and, and didn't think that they would find it so easy to kill so many people or attack so many people that there would be more forces fighting back and they thought that they would get more of an attack back. Not sure exactly why it happened the way it did. Now, Hamas was not expecting this kind of response from Israel. So now we're in a situation where you've got Hamas fearing its total eradication. How does the U.S. fit into all of this? Well, we are helping with vocal public support. We are giving weapons, ammunition, technology. We are also helping to rally other allies to help. The reason why we have not helped more with the invasion is really not quite clear. 
Hamas is a terrorist organization and should be stopped. However, Biden appears to be squeamish to step in in a more convincing way. The fear of, of the war widening could be a part of it. If we step in, perhaps Iran steps in after they try to help Hamas. If Iran does, they are allied with Russia. Could Russia then step in? Hmm. It's fighting in Ukraine. I, I really don't think Russia even has the capabilities to fight a war on two fronts. Could it widen then into World War III by having China jump in because China's allied with Russia in some ways and you have China, Iran, Russia, and then you get North Korea added into that. China could then attack Taiwan. You could get a whole bunch of different situations where World War III could start. There are reports now that Hamas is firing North Korean weapons. That is an interesting report. I, I don't have all of the information to verify that. But if it is, that shows that there is already some allying between those groups. If we jumped in, would our allies then come to our aid to help us fight Hamas or Hezbollah or whoever else we were to have to fight if we jump in? And I'm also concerned that Europe has been too quiet on this. I have not heard much from the UK at all. France has at least come forward and said, hey, we're banning anti-Jewish demonstrations. We're gonna stop this anti-Semitism. But much of Europe, to me, seems strangely quiet. If we as a world do not step up and stop carnage like this from terrorists, it just feeds into the power. If the world speaks with one strong voice against terror, then terror gets stamped out. I spoke in last week's podcast about Reagan's response to terror and what a strong response he had. And for a long time, we didn't have any terrible attacks until 9-11. The U.S formulates its own actions in regards to war. We we did this with Vietnam and Korea, where we went in to try to stop the spread of communism. But with many, many wars, as I said before, we get dragged in. Is this something we want to get dragged into? Russia would love to have our concentration pulled from Ukraine into Israel, and then they could move further into Europe. No! So we must make a stand against terror. Yes. With all the wars and all the politics of war, there are tipping points, there are gray areas, there are places we don't want to go. I do not want our troops, for example, involved in urban warfare in Gaza. I want them backing our allies in Israel. I want us to make the best stand that we can, but there are limits to what we can do, even some money limits to what we can do. I hope that gives you some perspective into this Israeli war and where we are right now and what we're trying to look at and some of our foreign policies. We are in a pickle, but I believe in our American military more than any other in the world. And despite the lack of leadership in Washington in this very serious time, our armed forces are second to none in the world and have been there for so many people. And I believe we can accomplish our goals in the cause of freedom. Coming up, we will discuss a beloved president but one who was not even beloved by his own state Mm. before he became president. Please stay here and thank you for listening.
Thank you again for joining us. War is a horrible thing, as we have been discussing, and war is a part of not only American history, but it's been a part of our history since the founding of our country, really a part of world history. Moving on with our program, we're going to discuss a great American hero who dealt with the worst of all American wars, the worst of all civil wars, one of the worst wars in world history. One which took almost a million American lives, more lives than was lost in all of the other American wars fought together combined. And in our Great American Heroes segment today, we are going to discuss one of my heroes from my childhood, Abraham Lincoln. In fact, I checked out a library book about him over and over and over again from the elementary school library at my school so many times that when they were getting rid of some of the old books, they gave me that book because my name was in that book more times than any other child. And I have that book now and I cherish that book. He was a shrewd negotiator and a great leader during the Civil War. But what made him come alive to me was that he was like me. He grew up in poverty. As a boy, though, he lost his mother. And despite this, and being born in a log cabin in abject poverty in 1809, he rose to become one of the greatest leaders in all of world history. He had to work throughout his life from chopping wood, working on riverboats, being a shopkeeper, a postmaster, all the way up to lawyer, which he taught himself to do. In fact, he taught himself to read by the light of a fire using charcoal to write with. Lincoln somehow rose to the highest office in the land. And he did this by a variety of ways. He was six foot four and loomed over people in height, but yet many saw him as kind and humble and even a jokester and a prankster. He was elected to statewide office first in 1834. One of the political points that he found most important right away 
was to move the capital of Illinois. This was very controversial. This was not liked by many, especially in the capital, which was located in Vandalia, Illinois at that point. He was bombarded by people from Vandalia and from people around Illinois who didn't want the capital to be moved, especially Southern Illinois where Vandalia is. Eventually though, Lincoln got his way, Lincoln and the people he worked with, and they moved the capital to Springfield, Illinois. There were many reasons Lincoln saw for this move. Springfield was bigger, more well-known. It was more populated. Springfield gave Illinois a better political center. And this was the beginning of the end for Lincoln in Illinois, believe it or not. Many <laughs> Illinois residents didn't like this move. No. Lincoln made his first speech against slavery here in 1837, and this speech infuriated some there. The final straw against him was his staunch opposition to the Mexican-American War, and he knew that he was done in Illinois once he was against this war. After being elected to Congress, U.S. Congress from Illinois in 1846, by 1849, 1850, he knew he was done and he did not run again in 1850. In fact, he was so done and he was so put out by politics, he said he was done forever. He was never going back into politics. <sighs> However, in 1854, Stephen Douglas began pushing for the Kansas-Nebraska Act, an act which had been passed in 1854. Lincoln strongly opposed this act, and he began making speeches against it. In 1855, Lincoln joined the newly formed Republican Party, which had been largely created in opposition to slavery's extension into new territories or states. What happened next changed history despite the fact that Lincoln ultimately lost. Lincoln began debating Douglas over the act in a series of debates while they were running against each other for Senate. Lincoln stated these famous words in his initial moves to stamp out slavery. This government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. Despite the fact that he lost the senatorial election, Lincoln rose to fame. His reputation grew, became beloved by many, not just in Illinois, but across the country. We still honor these debates that Lincoln and Douglas had every year in Texas, where UIL high schoolers get together and debate each other over a wide range of issues. And this format is called the UIL-Lincoln-Douglas debates. I don't know of many other UIL contests that are named after anyone. In 1860, he ran for president as a Republican against Stephen Douglas and two others and won with less than 40% of the vote. But Lincoln saw the flames burning across the country, the flames of tension, the flames of anger, the flames of hate. By the time he was sworn into office, seven states in the South had already seceded from the Union. In fact, by the time he tried to go to his inauguration where he was to be sworn in, he had to be protected from an assassination plot. He had to literally go in disguise. Facing the Civil War, Lincoln had to run it himself. He had to hire and fire his own generals. He wound up pushing through a lot of military strategy himself. He was forced to change general after general, running his army until he got to one by the name of Ulysses S. Grant, a cigar smoking guy, kind of a crazy guy but who helped lead his armies to victory. Lincoln was a shrewd leader and looked for leaders who were going to win because he knew that this terrible war had to end. 
and it was more about getting the war over and picking the right people to do that than anything else. This is part of what made him even more of an amazing leader overall. During the Civil War, he even personally led a raid himself, which is even more amazing that a president of the United States was out fighting the war. The reason he pushed the war to completion, even though some were against it, some just wanted the war to stop. Some just wanted there to be two different countries that let the South have their own reign and just let the war end because it was so bloody. But Lincoln saw America's greatness only reaching its full height as a united country. He wrote in a not very well-known piece in 1860 that clear liberty for all quote, clears the path for all, gives hope to all, and by consequence, enterprise and industry to all. He suspended several liberties during the war that he saw necessary, including habeas corpus. As this was a civil war, after all, it's not a norm for any country, and he saw it as something different. He didn't look to the war as preserving the status quo. He looked at it as a force for change. By mid-war, in fact, he began not only to push for the end of slavery, stopped, in other words, not spreading from one state to one state to a new state to a slave state versus a free state, but he wanted it to be completely eradicated from the United States forever. On January the 1st, 1863, he delivered the Emancipation Proclamation. Essentially, a presidential proclamation freeing all slaves in the South. Now, presidential proclamations presidential edicts now they have their limits and there's certain things they can and cannot do he began working behind the scenes in congress on the 13th amendment to the constitution to make sure slavery was banned altogether because the emancipation proclamation could not do that and he began to push it through congress these combined efforts by lincoln ultimately helped lead to the greatest cause for freeing slaves in human history after the Civil War, one nation after the other began to end slavery. Well over a hundred nations by now, at this point, having made that commitment since 1865. 160 years ago, this November will mark his famous Gettysburg Address, delivered after the horrible battle at Gettysburg. It was one of the most quoted speeches in history. He called upon the country to get behind freedom, for all to unite. He said that all men are created equal, quote, this speech was totally written by him and only took two minutes to give. And yet, it is one of the most widely quoted speeches and famous speeches in history. He was reelected in 1864 in a very tough reelection battle. He had already begun reconstruction in his speech by saying that the nation should unite and come together with, quote, malice toward none, with charity for all. But as many of you know, it was not a happy ending for our 16th president. On April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth, an actor sympathetic to the South, made him a martyr for the cause of freedom. He was shot in the head in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. while watching a play. I have been to this theater. I have seen the place he was shot. I have seen the gun that killed him. I have seen the building he died in and actually stood right next to the bed where he laid to die. And then I visited the building that pays homage to him now. It is truly a spiritual experience to go there. As I walked up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, I found myself at the point of tears as I entered. In fact, I found myself at the point of tears at preparing this program for you. I was not there on a special night. There were no special ceremonies. However, in the midst of this building, there was a gathering of people 
singing hymns, singing a chorus, surely God and Lincoln himself were an audience to. I stood before his giant visage stretching to the ceiling there in the building with all of his words surrounding us and realized why they had built such a large statue to him. He was larger than life. He was a log splitter, a self-made lawyer, fighting for the rights of the poor, the slave, and those who could not protect themselves. There are not many men who have ever lived on the face of this earth who should get the accolades that Abraham Lincoln does. Not many men who knew that they were giving their life away in order to fight for freedom and fight for the right things. I realized in those moments as I stood there that he is as much alive today as then because of the changes that he made on this earth, more changes than any mortal man possibly has ever produced born in America. I invite you to take a look at pictures of him before he was elected in 1860 as president and then compare him to the last photos taken of him just before he was shot. In only a five year span, he aged what looked like 20 years plus. The photos show war and the ravages of fighting slavery and the other ravages of just fighting a government that fought against him sometimes and it took a toll on him. He won the worst war in American history, despite the fact that many European monarchies were counting on it to end American freedom and bring back the power of the monarch. Some directly even helped the Confederacy. It did not though. And for the cause of freedom, he paid for it with his own life. He also gave the lives, I don't know if many are aware of his own children during the war, fighting for the cause of freedom. He is now one of the most quoted people in history he has helped free many millions of people. He is known as Honest Abe, the great emancipator, the liberator, and humbly, the rail splitter. And we honor him every year with the national holiday in February. He's my hero and a hero to many. And may his legacy and his personal cause for human dignity and rights continue to drive America towards spreading the cause of freedom around the world. Had Lincoln lived, I believe Reconstruction would have gone better. He would have directed it better. It would not have been so fraught with so much difficulty and divided our country so much. Booth led to this problem by killing him, but Booth did not end the freeing of slaves like Booth wanted to. Instead, he made Lincoln a martyr that spread freedom around the world and freedom across the United States. Coming up next, we will get into a new segment called Thrills on the Hill, where we will discuss politics at the state capitol. By the way, we don't have the Speaker of the House yet. We don't have one right now. We fired one for the first time in American history. We will also discuss in later in our some of our fun segments, Yahoo. our honorary Weird Al tinfoil hat nut job hot off the presses segment where we will chase down Bigfoot. Ooh. So please stay with us.
Thank you again for staying with us. We are excited to present our second full podcast of Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. War is on the minds of so many. This Israel conflict is so dangerous, as we discussed in our first segment. It's made even more serious when the House of Representatives cannot even get together and elect a Speaker of the House. We have a new segment called Thrills from the Hill, and in this segment, which will be presented intermittently, we will discuss politics in Congress. We will discuss what is behind the speaker vote in our first segment today. First of all, the House is the body of the government that appropriates money for our entire government and for our entire country. That is done according to the Constitution. Yes. The House is made up of 435 members. Any member in the House can be elected Speaker. In fact, anyone can be elected Speaker of the House. Anyone, anywhere. (laughs) But the party that is in control of the House has control over who can be elected Speaker. They have to have the majority in place. In other words, the majority, the highest number of people in the House. And the majority normally to be able to to elect Speaker of the House is 218, which is more than half of that 435 voting member. They can then nominate the Speaker. They can then call for a vote. Without a Speaker of the House, literally, the House is just sitting there. They can't do anything. They can't make laws. They're just, they're just there. They just exist. We're just paying them to do nothing, which is ridiculous. The party in power now are the Republicans. They have a slim majority, uh, 221 seats to 212. Now, you may think, that's not 435. Well, two seats right now are vacant for various reasons. So the Republicans now only need 217 votes. Mm. When the House last elected a speaker, it took 15 rounds of voting to get Kevin McCarthy (gasps) voted in. And this was the person that was recently fired. This time, after multiple rounds of voting, Both Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise were nominated by committee. They did not receive the votes needed to be elected. While many see this as Republicans fighting amongst themselves, I see Donald Trump written all of this. His name's everywhere. Initially, Kevin McCarthy thought the election night might have been stolen (gasps) in 2020. He reversed course, though, and when he changed his mind, this angered President Trump. And Jordan has always been one of Trump's guys. He handpicked him to be speaker. He pushed him to be the speaker of the house. But Jordan carries with him baggage. He's not liked by moderate Republicans. He seems to have an inability to work across the aisle. He hasn't gotten funding passed for Ukraine and Israel because he doesn't seem to like pushing money out to foreign countries for wars. He has some harsh stances on some things, so finding compromise for him is a big issue. Mm -hmm. He also has never personally had a single piece of his own legislation passed in the House after being in the House for quite a long time. And because Trump does not forgive easily when someone turns on him, he does not forget. And this is what I think is behind McCarthy's ouster as Speaker of the House and the reason why Jordan's name was pushed so hard afterward. Trump wanted Jordan in as speaker. He wanted McCarthy out and Jordan in, which is why you see this extraordinary situation happen where a speaker of the House gets fired for the first time in American history. (gasps) Now, the Republicans have put nine names forward, which is ridiculous. (laughs) 
But there are two interesting names to me. One is Pete Sessions of Texas and then Byron Donalds of Florida. Sessions has had an interesting career. He's running some tight races. He's run against some far right-wing Republicans. So some see him as maybe a moderate. He's the son of a former FBI director. Donalds, though, would be even more interesting. In fact, very interesting for one main reason. He could become the first African-American Speaker of the House in American history. He's pro-Trump all the way. He's pro-life. He's very, very far to the right. But he seems to have better friendships in Congress and works better than Jordan does around the House. When Scalise was nominated, he looked like a shoe-in, though. <sighs> Instead, some people on the Jordan camp jumped ship on him during the vote. So Scalise pulled his name out quickly in the name of unity. I think Trump needs to stay out of this because every time his name gets put into this, people show their anger and they pull out. <sighs> we don't want to look like the laughing stock. <laughs> of the world, which we do right now, for all this infighting that we can't even rule ourselves. We cannot even find a Speaker of the House, which is called for by the Constitution. Yes! The Republicans are looking really silly right now. Caleb, Caleb. Outside influences start to rear their ugly head in politics in Washington all the time. This is not an unusual thing for an outside influence to try to influence our politics. But <laughs> we don't want that to ruin our form of government. And when you have something happen for the first time in American history, that is extraordinary. That is something that should never happen. Yes. But let me tell you why it did. I am not sure if you're aware, but the Speaker of the House is third in line to the presidency. If Biden or Harris were no longer to be president for whatever reason, the Speaker of the House would be sworn in as president. It's a very powerful position. This is why there's so much fighting for the job. This is why there's so much fighting over who should be nominated for the job. It is important for Congress to legislate, though, and that's number one, yes! because they are the only branch that controls the purse strings, so everything they do is important. <laughs> and Israel needs financial help right now against Tomas, as we spoke about in the first segment. We need to get a speaker in ASAP so we can get the necessary help to Israel. Yes. The Republicans have some blame for this, obviously, because they're the party in power. They're letting Trump influence them. There's this petty infighting going on. We have eight complete goofballs Goofy. who joined up with the Democrats to oust the speaker. Ah. All of those people are to blame. There are so many stubborn people who cannot get together now to make compromises to find a person. Why? It's ridiculous. There are 221 Republicans to choose from. It should not be hard to find one. Once Jordan dropped out, there are now nine in. There really only should be one or two because it should be obvious who the real leaders are. It's ridiculous. But let's put some blame back on the Democrats because they are playing a bad game here. During war, during budget crises, during bad things that are happening around the world, playing politics with this important of a position is bad. They too could help in this situation, but they appear to want to play politics and let the country hang out to dry rather than help Israel, rather than do something against terrorism, rather than get our country going, rather than pass a budget. They could join forces with moderate Republicans. There is a possibility of doing this and get a moderate Republican speaker elected. They could do this to keep the rest of the world from jeering us on the world stage oh. for failing to be able to lead ourselves because the rest of the world wants our money. Let's just be honest. That's really what it's about. But they never should have joined with radical right-wingers to begin with. No. It was something never done before in American history. You had the radical right, the radical left, fire a house speaker. No. Ridiculous. 
It makes them look as silly as the radical Republicans. I do not like the situation we're in, obviously, by the way I'm speaking. It is certainly a saga. It is thrilling and chilling. And as we get closer to Halloween, political insiders love watching this. Let's look for some spooky things to happen. Next, we turn to fixing the problem and who can fix it. In our Uniter, Not Divider segment this week, we're gonna go back to the House of Representatives to highlight none other than Kevin McCarthy, the former Speaker of the House. Now, McCarthy has certainly taken harsh sides and has not always been the most uniting of figures, but in the last couple of weeks, he has put aside petty politics. He stood up for the country. McCarthy is the Congressman from California's 20th Congressional District, serving the San Joaquin Valley. He's from California originally, he's born there. Uh, He's been in Congress since 2002. He's held various leadership positions since he was elected. And he was actually a leader right away as soon as he was put into Congress. He was leader of the Republicans when they gained seats in the House during the 2022 elections. He was elected speaker after that, but as I alluded to earlier, after 15 rounds of balloting. The reason I chose McCarthy this week was twofold for this uniter, not divider position. The first was his work on funding the government this last time. He worked across the aisle with Democrats to get this done, showing he's trying to be a uniting influence. Staunch right-wing Republicans led by Florida's Matt Gates used a few of his henchmen and the Democratic Party to get him fired after the vote. The bill that got him fired, that was passed overwhelmingly by the House, passed on a 335 to 91 vote, with 126 Republicans voting with it. Initially, there was another spending bill that McCarthy had proposed that was even more conservative that the conservatives could have voted for, but the hard right Republicans opposed it even more. It seems that they just had it out for McCarthy. They just wanted to reduce spending severely. They were just gonna push and push and push. And many of those who were against this bill were from the far right Freedom Caucus. And this group is moving more and more to the right and it's very closely tied to President Trump. In any case, the bill that passed was a short-term spending bill with $16 billion in federal aid for disaster relief, but nothing for the war in Ukraine, which is what the hard right didn't want. Yet, they turned on him. Yet, the Democrats who got their bill passed that they wanted turned on him. McCarthy, though, did what was best for the country. This is why I criticize the Democrats so strongly here. This is why I criticize those eight Republicans so strongly here. He helped the country by getting the budget deal passed. They then joined up behind him to turn on him and get him fired. Politics is sorry when this kind of stuff happens. As general Americans, as regular Americans, we ought to be absolutely incensed by this kind of stuff. After losing your job, many of you would be frustrated and angry if you were fired. Some might even like just get out, get away from something altogether, but not McCarthy. He went right back to work trying to resolve the situation and work within the Republican caucus to get it resolved. He even went as far as backing his rival. As I alluded to earlier in the segment, McCarthy was ousted by pro-Trump sources wanting to push a hard right view. Jordan may have been pushing behind the scenes to get him out, yet trying to get a speaker elected and trying to heal wounds, McCarthy went as far as going to Jim Jordan and making a speech to nominate him for speaker. He said, trust me, being speaker is not an easy job, especially in this conference. 
But I've seen Jim spend his entire career fighting for freedom no matter what, no matter the odds, and I know he's ready for the job. Now, I don't know about you, but that to me speaks highly of his character because I don't know if I could back my rival and especially say good things about my rival after my rival had done the things to me that Jim Jordan and his people apparently did to Kevin McCarthy. Jordan and McCarthy have also fought in the past, yet McCarthy stepped up to nominate this same guy to get the country moving forward. A leader is not always defined by winning. Sometimes it's the character they show, the resolve and the selflessness they show when they lose. This is why McCarthy is my uniter, not divider of the week. Folks, according to Gallup polling, political ideology in America has been fairly consistent over the last hundred years or so. Year by year, it changes a little here and there, but generally about 35 to 40 percent of us identify as conservative and 20 to 30 percent of us identify as liberal. The rest of us are most of America. The rest of us fall in the middle and the middle is most of America. You whittle off those liberal or conservative and not the very conservative or not the very liberal. Most of America, which is about 80%, are moderate people. They might lean a little bit conservative. They might lean a little bit liberal. But we are letting about 10% of the right wing, far right wing, 10% of the far left wing run this country, which is crazy. Why are we letting them do that? We as moderate Americans must stop letting the far left or far right wing run this country unchecked. That is what has happened in getting our House Speaker unelected and what is happening in not letting us get Israel some benefits. We must stop it. The average American needs to speak up more. We must vote. We must get out there and work in elections. We must get out there and help our country. Yes. You won't see this awful mess happen in the House if the average American gets out there and works and speaks up. Coming up next, we're going to find out where Bigfoot is. And we're going to find out what President Biden said this time. We will add a little levity to your tough week. We will add a little fun. Please stay with us.
Welcome back, one and all, and thank you listeners for tuning in to our little show. And in our final segments, we will get right into our honorary Weird Al tinfoil hat nut job hot off the presses conspiracy story. And then we are going to get into some other fun stuff with our good old friend, President Biden, who seems to give us lots of fodder for our fun part of the show. But anyway, first, we're going to go to Colorado for this one. A somewhat convincing viral video of Bigfoot doing his thing in the field between Durango and Silverton has surfaced. Some tourists, a couple of the Parkers, were taking a train ride and were able to get about 15 seconds or so of some thing, a big guy, foraging while the train passed by. There were other witnesses to this sighting. Some officials have looked into it, and according to the Daily Mail, Indiana and Oklahoma have sent their Bigfoot research organizations into investigations into Bigfoot sightings in their state after the video service. In fact, a sheriff in Colorado has even urged scientists and the federal government to look into this sighting because he is worried about his citizens' safety. I saw the video. The being in the video, anyway, could be a Bigfoot. It is very shaggy. It appears to be eating something in the field. It is a very weird thing. It seems to be very strange looking. But it's also possible it could be a person in a suit. The difference here, though, is where it was spotted and when it was spotted, how it was spotted. What would someone be doing out there in the mountains, in the open field, dressed like that? Doing what it was doing, eating off the ground. Perhaps it's real, but... It's really strange that someone would be doing that at that time. Uh, You have to be desperate for attention, I guess. No one knows that's you. (laughs) Anyway, I live here in Texas, which is one of the top 10 states for Bigfoot sightings, and I have not seen it. However, Texas is the only state I have hiked in that is in the top 10 in the U.S. for Squatch sightings. I have gone hiking in other states, and there's been a weird thing or two happened to me. I had a weird thing happen in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee one time, where I had a sudden feeling I was being watched or stalked by something, and I walked for a little bit, and I'd hear a little bit of noise, and then I'd walk for a little bit, I'd hear a little bit of noise. It was a really weird feeling, but I never saw any Sasquatch or anything. Sasquatch has been reported in Europe. I have hiked there too. I've hiked in Germany, France, England, Switzerland, and Italy, but those are not the top countries to spot him either. So maybe I just didn't hike in the right spots. According to researchers, among those who have actually had sightings, some 90% never go reported due to the fact that the people will think they will be ridiculed or will be questioned for what they saw. Some, however, begin digging in and start researching it themselves. Mm. I've seen evidence of Bigfoot on some of the recent TV shows like the History Channel's Monster Quest, Josh Gates's Expedition Unknown, which is a really great show if you don't watch it. That is where science meets entertainment, in my opinion. I've personally met him. I believe he is very sincere. Yes. Bigfoot is large. He's said to be eight to nine feet tall and remarkably fast. One video shows him running across a road in front of a police dash cam. Now, I don't believe the police would fake it. I don't believe the police would lie. And he takes three steps to go across this road. I was once a complete skeptic, and I even wrote research papers in college that he was a complete myth until I started seeing him show up in Native American cultures and saw him show up on this video. And I have moved him now into my 
it's possible category. <gasps> the best evidence I saw was on one of those History Channel shows where Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, a full professor of anatomy and primatology at Idaho State University, who is very well respected and has given evidence for the FBI in criminal cases, has studied the casts of Bigfoot prints and discovered that some would be difficult, if not impossible, to hoax. Ooh. He also discovered that one particular cast, the cast was made more than 20 years apart, and the casts showed the same foot, an injury to the foot with the same dermal ridges on it. These dermal ridges are tiny little lines on the bottom of the feet. On fakes, these are not present or they look fake. In the famous Bigfoot film from the 60s made by Roger Patterson showing a Bigfoot walking through the woods, I was sure this film was fake. And especially when I wrote my papers, I was sure of it. But I've seen scientific analysis of this film since then that has changed my opinion of it. You can see muscle movement below the fur. It would be really hard to fake it unless you're like a Hollywood professional who knows what you're doing. I would encourage you to look at that film for yourself, the enhanced film. It is interesting, all of this, but it's still in the realm of the not provable until we get a Bigfoot body. Science will not claim the reality of something until we have DNA or a limb or a body or blood or something. But it's interesting and fun to look at. So if you're looking for Bigfoot, go to Colorado. He's there. Maybe he will know more about what is going on in our country, maybe than some of us do. And finally, in our campaign in the membrane segment, we are going to Israel. Yes, Israel. I know we're talking about campaigns, but President Biden was visiting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And of course, Biden is running for president. <clears throat> Biden decided he should tell a story about something he and Secretary of State Blinken had talked about while they both were in the Senate. <laughs> Quote, you know, years ago, I asked the Secretary of State when he and I were working in the Senate to write something for me. And he said he wrote a line I think that is appropriate. He said, it's not we lead. Uh, it's not just uh well, I won't go into it. I'll wait till later. It's taking too much time, Biden said. Now, Biden has made many situations like this happen where he cannot finish his thoughts and he seems lost. This one was a real gem and it's going to be a real gem, especially for the right, for Trump, especially for those running against him because yes. it's going to make him tough to be president again if he cannot keep his thoughts together. Yes. The Citizen Free Press wrote on X formerly known as Twitter, after this was over. This last part of the quote sums up Biden's presidency, where he says, it's not just we lead, uh, it's not just, uh, well, I won't go into it, I'll wait till later, it's taking too much time. Now you think about that part of the quote, and you think about how it sums up his presidency. Anyway, I don't think this particular quote will kill his candidacy in particular, but if you add up how many times this is happening to him, I do think this is starting to kill his candidacy. It's funny, but also sad that our president cannot finish a thought. He should not be running. He is not capable. No. As more of these quotes are heard, more and more people will feel the same. But we are at the end of our show for today. Thank you for pulling up another one of our programs. Hooray! We are now available on the following platforms, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Samsung, Podchaser, and Boomplay. We're getting on some more, so be patient. If you enjoy the show, please let us know. You could do it easily by hitting your like button on any of your favorite platforms, or you could give us a virtual hug. That is, you know, 
just put out your arms and give us a little smiley face, look in the bathroom mirror, write a little heart on your... Uh, no, not, don't do any of that. Just like us on the button. But in any case, join us again next week. We will dig into the life of another great American hero, a woman who had to deal with war, sexism, but push through to help humanity. We will also discuss abortion and our poli-sci for the normal guy piece. We will go through a brief history of this very difficult subject, and we will look how it has affected elections, how it may affect this election, how the latest Supreme Court decision, what it means for the future. We will have a fun look at some silly things that our political leaders will be doing, of course, and you know they will be doing them. I am Craig Allen. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. 